Waste, fraud, and abuse in the federal student aid loan program is bad, but it would have been a lot worse if not for my next guest. For more than 20 years, she's given tough and crucial oversight to federal financial aid for students, rooting out fraudsters and saving untold sums of money. Now she's a finalist in the Service to America Medals program. Melissa Emery Aris, the Director of Education, Workforce, and Income Security Issues at the Government Accountability Office, joins me now. Melissa, good to have you back. Great to be here, Tom. Thank you. And this has really been kind of a crusade in some sense for you. The Education Department's loan programs has been your specialty for how long now? Over 21 years, Tom. Wow. So you have seen a lot happen. And there's some specific situations you've kind of rooted out. Talk about people that are simply ineligible for student aid that nevertheless got it. How did you discover that? And what happened when you presented this to the Education Department? That's a great question, Tom. We looked at students who did not have high school diplomas or GEDs and were trying to go to college. And the idea was that you could go to college if you didn't have a GED or a high school diploma if you passed a basic math and English test. And we decided to see if that was working. And it's hard to believe this, but at GAO, we actually had staff pretend to be students and then had them purposely fail the test to see what would happen. <laughs> That's funny. Right? You think going to work for the government, you're not going to do something like that. But you can. You can work for the government and do cool undercover and investigative work. And that's what we did. We had staff pretend to be students, and we hooked them up with microphones, and we sent them in to take this test of basic math and English skills and see what would happen if they tried to fail the test. What was shocking to us was that the proctor was giving out the answers from the get-go. In fact, we have a recording that has the proctor saying, it is not D, it is not C, it is not A, so it is B. Number one is B, which was just completely incredible to us that the test proctor, who was charged with making sure that the test was done correctly, was in fact giving out the answers from the beginning. Was this person a contractor? Was it an education department employee? I mean, how did this type of situation develop in the first place? They worked for a college, and there was an incentive for the college to enroll more students so the college would receive federal student aid. So the college could line its pockets if it could get more students in the door. But it's not, it's not a good situation. It's not good for the student if the student doesn't know basic math and English. And it's certainly not good for taxpayers who are funding a college education for someone who really isn't ready for it. Right. I would say, yeah, education loans for dummies is probably not a great program. It seems like you were able to discover two things, really, if you look at this carefully. One is that there was fraud going on, just outright cheating, you know, by the right, proctor. Right. But also that the incentives built into the program might have been a little bit off. Definitely, definitely. And we found that similarly in terms of college officials helping prospective students get fake high school diplomas, right? I'm just going to say that again. <laughs> we have found situations where college officials were helping people get fake high school diplomas so they could enroll in the college and, again, get federal student aid from the federal government. 
again, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You think that college should be for people who've completed high school, who have the skills, and at that point, it makes sense for them to go to college. But it's completely inappropriate and fraudulent to go that route, and we crack down on it. And because of that, there are many more controls in place now to prevent those kinds of frauds from happening. And that's what we do at the Government Accountability Office. We fight fraud, and I'm so proud to have done that in the higher education space. We're speaking with Melissa Emery Aris. She's Director of Education, Workforce, and Income Security Issues at the GAO and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And in another case, you found that there were college students who were deserving of loans, but they had no permanent housing and therefore they couldn't verify their status. So your work has been on behalf of the recipients of these programs also. That's true. We've done a lot of work to help vulnerable students go to college and stay in college. In one of the studies that we worked on, we found that college students were living in cars, tents, and being on other people's couches because they didn't have a place to stay. And when you're in that situation, You don't get paperwork that says, I'm officially homeless, right? You're just trying to get through the day and sleep wherever you can. And yet those students were getting tripped up by all the rules and requirements because they didn't have documentation that they were homeless. They may have had documentation that they were homeless from high school, but when they got to college, they didn't have that. And because of that, they were struggling to stay in college. Their financial aid was getting turned off. They were being dropped from courses which was just heartbreaking. I mean, if you think about the lengths that these students went to to stay in college, like sleeping in a car, sleeping in a tent, and then going to classes during the day, and then not being able to get your financial aid because you don't have paperwork that says you're homeless, it was just tragic. And in our work, we found a way to change that so that we recommended that once a student was identified as homeless, often from their high school experience, that they be considered as continuing to be homeless unless someone had evidence to the contrary. And because of that, homeless college students can now have access to federal student aid and hopefully change their life trajectory. Well, you've done many other investigations and oversight work in different areas of this whole program. My question is, how have relations been with the education department? The political leadership has come and gone in 20 years. You are there in a kind of continuous way, a steady way. And what do they say when you say, did you know this is going on? That's a great question. It it can depend on the study. Sometimes we have a warmer reception to our findings than other times. But I do need to give the Department of Education credit. They implement our recommendations in education at a much higher rate than the overall rate for the government. So they are doing a good job of implementing our recommendations, and it is so gratifying to see big changes in programs and big changes in the lives of students because of these changes. And more recently, you have done work to make sure that people eligible for the forgiveness programs, in fact, do receive that forgiveness. That's legally they're entitled to it. And at one point, 99% of the applications were being turned down, including most of the eligibles. That's right. So we had done work at the very beginning of the public service loan forgiveness program to see how it was functioning. 
and it was so frustrating. We found that 99% of applicants were being denied for the program. And because of that, we made recommendations to improve the program, to streamline it, and to help make sure that borrowers have the information they need to know if they are eligible. And I think that has made a tremendous difference in terms of the public service loan forgiveness program. In addition, there are other forgiveness programs that we've looked at. For example, last year we looked at a program that provides forgiveness after a period of time where people are on what are called income-driven repayment plans, where people pay a lower amount based on their income, and then after 20 or 25 years, the government is supposed to forgive their balances if they've made all of their appropriate payments. And what's really interesting about that program is that it's not an application for forgiveness. The borrower doesn't say, I've made my 20 or 25 years of payments, please forgive my loans now. It's actually the government's responsibility, the Department of Education's responsibility to keep track of those payments and then when the time comes to provide the forgiveness for the balances. But unfortunately, we found last year that that wasn't happening. We found that the government had, quite frankly, lost track of payments. They had lost track of payments over many years. They had lost track of payments over multiple administrations. And because of that, there were many people who would be potentially eligible for full forgiveness from the income-driven repayment plan but we're still making payments every month. Crazy. Um, so concerning, especially in a situation where, you know, you would hope that you could trust the government to keep track of the payments and provide the forgiveness as it was promised, but that wasn't happening. And because of our work, the Department of Education decided to make really significant changes. And you had asked about the department's openness to our work. And in that case, especially, I would say that the department was very responsive to our work and decided to do a one-time adjustment to all of the folks in those income-driven repayment plans, and that is going to help over 3.5 million borrowers get closer to forgiveness. And just a final question in the larger sense. When you look at the cost of college and the government's almost $2 trillion program to help people go to these colleges, do you ever wonder, is the government maybe fueling the demand for this commodity, which is overpriced because most colleges have more administrators sitting around on their keisters than they have professors and bazillion-dollar stadiums and sports programs? Do you ever wonder, like, what are we paying for here? That is a significant concern because you want to make sure that the cost is necessary, right? You want to make sure that taxpayer dollars are well spent. And because of that, we think it's important that colleges actually disclose how much they cost to students when students are considering going to them. And we did a study last year which was so concerning. We did a study that looked at the financial aid offers. These are the, the letters that students receive when they've been accepted, and the letters say how much a college costs and how much aid the student will get, or at least that's what you would think that they would say. But what we found was that over 91% of colleges were not providing the full actual cost of the college in these offers to students. And what that means is that students and their families don't have the information that they need to make that decision up front as to whether or not they can afford that college. Because of that, we made a recommendation to Congress, which I have to say is pretty rare. Usually we make recommendations to federal agencies, sure. but in this case, 
we made a recommendation to Congress that Congress require colleges to fully disclose the actual cost to students in those financial aid offers. And because of that, there is now legislation being considered on the Hill to do that. Yeah, because, you know, the government has gone after the for-profit schools, but really, if you look at the rest of the .edu world, that is not exactly a primrose, squeaky-clean situation either, is it? No, it's not. And because we found that 91% of colleges were not informing students and their families of the real cost, it shows that it's not just one sector of education. It's not just the for-profits. It's not just the nonprofits. It's all sectors of education. That can really fuel the loan challenges that a lot of people face. If, if you sign up for a college thinking it's going to be a certain amount, and then when you show up on campus and you find out it's $10,000 more because they never told you what the housing cost was going to be, you might need to take out a loan for that that you weren't planning on. Sure. Well, I can think of a new form of Cash for Clunkers program in case anyone is listening. <laughs> Melissa Emery Aris is Director of Education, Workforce and Income Security Issues at the Government Accountability Office, and she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Really appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with all of our Sammy's finalist interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it You know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.